time for Americans to grow up and become financially responsible. Let's talk about something important. If you're in it for the money, that's not a bad thing. Do you realize how much money he just saved us? This is The Financial Physician with Lou Scatigna. The Financial Physician. It's the fastest hour in Money Talk Radio. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hardworking people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates. This is financial advice you can take to the bank. He's your money man. Show me the money. Your source for straightforward, no-nonsense financial advice. Bring me your money questions because I'm here to help. And now, here he is, the financial physician, America's money doctor, Lou Scatigna. Greetings, my friends. How are you? And welcome to today's The Financial Physician. Lou Scatigna here. Thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully, you're enjoying your summer. It's a hot one this week. I can't believe uh, the day after tomorrow is August 1st. Why is it that the summer goes by so fast, but the winter drags on forever? Doesn't it seem that way? Anyway, before you know it, it'll be Labor Day. Summer will be over, and we'll be talking about pumpkins and turkeys and uh, Christmas trees. That's how quick time goes these days. Boy, I got a great show for you today. We're, we're going to talk about almost everything today. Um, so many things going on uh, that it could I, I could fill up a four-hour show. I really could. We have um, Hunter Biden slap on her wrist now became a... Uh, kicking the testicles. Uh, we'll talk about that in, in depth. Uh, in Congress, we had uh, retired higher ups in the military discussing UFOs and uh, claiming that we have ships, we have uh, non human remains uh, or beings. Uh, this is pretty earth shattering stuff. You'd think it would be all over the news. Uh, we're going to dive into that later in the program. Uh, let's talk. Uh, oh, um, the media is obviously covering for the Biden still. We're going to play some uh, interesting clips of uh, the media uh, giving cover to the Bidens. Uh, so we got a lot to talk about on today's programs. And I want to start off with some economic stuff that came out this week. Uh, the first thing that's uh, very important to everybody, obviously, is interest rates. And the Federal Reserve uh, met this week and, as expected, raised uh, the federal funds rate, 25 basis points. For those who don't know what a basis point is, a basis point is one one-hundredth of one percent. So uh, 25 basis points uh, is raising it a quarter of one percent to five and a half percent. Now, a year and a half ago, uh, it was a quarter of a percent. <laughs> so that's a big move, five percent plus move in a little over the year. And uh, at 5.5 percent, that's the highest level of interest rates in 22 years. And the reason being is that the Fed is really hell-bent on fighting inflation. And uh, they're going to continue to raise rates, it looks like. Uh, and we'll play a clip from Jerome Powell, who gave his press conference after they raised uh, interest rates. But uh, they're still keyed on inflation. And even though the rate of inflation, again, according to the government, which we'll talk about government statistics in a minute, uh is uh, starting to slow down. So uh, the Federal Reserve raised rates uh, as expected, um, and uh, the markets actually took it pretty good. Uh, I think the Dow was up on Wednesday when he announced that. Uh, interest rates did spike in the bond market, which we'll get to in a second, uh, but the Fed is hell-bent on raising rates, and it looks like they may raise some more later on. They kept the door open, but they used the term data-dependent. And what does data dependent mean? It means they're going to look at 
inflation numbers. They're going to look at employment numbers. They're going to look at GDP. Uh, and they're going to make their moves based on uh, the results of those numbers. Uh, and that's something they really didn't talk much about uh, in the past. They didn't use that term data dependent. So the markets, you know, they, they look at every word in the statement uh, and then they, they listen to every word in the press conference afterwards, and then they determine what's going to happen going forward. So the markets liked it. The economists liked the press conference um, because it left the door open to waiting. And my guess is that the, the next meeting in August, they're not going to do anything. Uh, now, of course, Powell won't commit, you know, what he's going to do and who blames him. Uh, he wants to keep his doors open. But this is a, a part of his press conference uh, where he talks about what the Fed may do going forward. At today's meeting, the committee raised the target range for the federal funds rate by a quarter percentage point, bringing the target range to five and a quarter to five and a half percent. We are also continuing the process of significantly reducing our securities holdings. With today's action, we've raised our policy rate by five and a quarter percentage points since early last year. We have been seeing the effects of our policy tightening on demand in the most interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy, particularly housing and investment. It will take time, however, for the full effects of our ongoing monetary restraint to be realized, especially on inflation. In addition, the economy is facing headwinds from tighter credit conditions for households and businesses, which are likely to weigh on economic activity, hiring, and inflation. In determining the extent of additional policy firming that may be appropriate to return inflation to 2% over time, the committee will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation, and economic and financial developments. We will continue to make our decisions meeting by meeting based on the totality of the incoming data and their implications for the outlook for economic activity and inflation, as well as the balance of risks. We remain committed to bringing inflation back to our 2% goal and to keeping longer-term inflation expectations well anchored. Reducing inflation is likely to require a period of below-trend growth and some softening of labor market conditions. Restoring price stability is essential to set the stage for achieving maximum employment and stable prices over the longer run. To conclude, we understand that our actions affect communities, families, and businesses across the country. Everything we do is in service to our public mission. We at the Fed will do everything we can to achieve our maximum employment and price stability goals. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Um, you have, I think a couple times in your opening remarks talked about this language in determining the extent of additional policy firming that may be appropriate. Should we take that to mean that additional hikes are likely on the way? And should we also believe that all future meetings, say September and November, are live, or are you in a every other meeting mode? Thank you. So we, we haven't made a decision to go to every other meeting. It's not something we've looked at. We're going to be going meeting by meeting. And uh, as we go into each meeting, we're going to be asking ourselves the same question. So we haven't made any decisions about, about any future meetings, including the pace at which we'd consider hiking. So he's leaving his options open. Um, the Fed has a dual mandate, they say, and that's maximum employment and low inflation, or at least moderate inflation. And his goal is 2%. 
you know, was supposed to be at 3% right now. So you don't think he's far off. But he went on to say later on in a press conference that uh, he doesn't think we're going to hit the 2% level until um, 2025, which means they're not going to be lowering interest rates for a year and a half. Now, nobody in the market believes that because they believe that ultimately the economy is going to start to contract. And he mentioned there, he said, we're going to probably be looking at below average growth uh, and maybe some uh, higher unemployment. And that's naturally what happens when you raise interest rates. And a lot of economists are pretty surprised that we're not in recession yet. Now, as a matter of fact, uh, the gross domestic product was announced for the second quarter, and it came in higher than expected. It came in at 2.4% growth rate. Now, no economists expected it. Uh, uh, they were expecting 1% growth rate uh, in, the, in the second quarter GDP. Now, we're going to get back to what I always say about these government numbers. I don't trust any of them. I don't trust the employment numbers, I don't trust the inflation numbers, and I don't trust the gross domestic product numbers because they're all massaged. And we're going into an election year, uh, and you know uh, that these numbers aren't going to be accurate because there's no way uh, the Democrats want to run in the midst of a recession. But it looks like the Federal Reserve is hell-bent on doing just that, and if they keep raising rates, uh, we're going to go into recession. Now, um, the... um, New York Times came out and obviously spinned this very, very positive uh, for the um, for the government. And they went on to say in their article, the economic recovery gained momentum in the spring as buoyant consumer spending and resurgent business investment helped once again to keep a recession at bay. Gross domestic product adjusted for inflation rose at 2.4 percent annual rate in the second quarter. That was up from 2 percent growth rate in the first three months of the year and far stronger than forecasts expected a few months ago. Consumers led the way, as they as they have throughout the recovery, from the severe but short-lived pandemic recession in 2020. Spending rose at 1.6%, slower than the first quarter, but still solid. Much of that growth came from spending on services, as consumers shelled out vacation travel, restaurant meals, and Taylor Swift tickets. Consumers didn't carry all the weight, however, Business investment rebounded in the second quarter after slumping the first three months of the year and increased spending by state and local governments contributed to growth. So they're obviously spending this really good. You know, this is really persistent strength in the economy. And of course, it goes on to say the persistent strength of the economy has surprised economists, many of whom thought that high inflation and the Federal Reserve's efforts to stamp it out through aggressive interest rate increases would lead to a recession or at least a clear slowdown in the first half of the year. So we're not seeing that according to the official government government numbers. And this is kind of interesting because because usually, I mean, almost every time that the Fed raised interest rates, the economy went into a recession. Every recession was preceded by an inverted yield curve where short-term interest rates were higher than long-term interest rates, uh, which we've had for almost two years now. So it's kind of miraculous that we're not seeing the GDP go negative. We're not seeing the unemployment rate go up. Uh, But talk to the average family. You ask them if the economy is doing well, and they'll tell you otherwise. Um, So uh, obviously, uh, they're going to spin this as good as possible. Um, Also, uh, when it came to um, uh, 
the Federal Reserve raising rates, even though we don't have a recession. They thought this was a great thing, too. So, um, you know, the media is going to go out there and Biden's going to go out there and talk about how great the economy is under his uh, leadership, if you want to call it that. Um, but uh, I think we all know that this is um, how should I say it? Uh, polished, massaged, uh, <laughs> rigged, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so the White House, White House officials couldn't wait to go out and uh, pointed uh, to the report as evidence that the president's economic policies, including investments in infrastructure and green energy, were paying off. Uh, so Bidenomics, uh, it, it's working out well for all of us, and uh, that's the reason why he should be reelected, I guess. Um, but uh, I think if you ask the average American family how the economy's doing, uh, they wouldn't agree so, agree so much. <laughs> it's looking pretty good. Um but one thing we have to keep an eye on now that that's really probably going to indicate that inflation is going to get worse in the months to come is energy prices. Uh, this week, uh, a barrel of oil went over $80 a barrel uh, for the first time in, I think, a couple of years. Uh, here's a headline. U.S. gasoline prices reach eight-month high. The U.S. retail gasoline prices reached their highest levels since November. Average gasoline prices have risen by 13.4 cents from a week ago today, according to AAA. The current price of an average gallon of retail gasoline in the United States climbed to 3.71 per gallon on Thursday, up from 3.68 the week before. Uh, New Jersey has pretty low gas prices compared to the rest of the country. Uh, I'm seeing 3.79, 3.82 uh, here in New Jersey, so I don't know where that number comes from, but. I've seen that uh, gasoline prices certainly have been rising quite rapidly uh, the last couple of weeks as oil prices have gone up. I guess uh, I guess the president will have to go out there and drain more of the strategic uh, reserve, strategic petroleum. Oh, there's nothing left. I forgot. Uh, and they don't plan on refilling that strategic reserve for a few years at least. So uh, I don't think there's much uh, gasoline uh, left or petroleum left in our uh, strategic reserve, they've, they've let it all out to try to um, make inflation look better. Uh, but now we see energy prices regaining uh, the upward price increases, and it's going to um, slide through to the entire economy. And why is energy so important? Because energy goes into everything. I mean, it affects a family's budget, of course, uh, when you fill up your car. Uh, but in manufacturing, when energy prices go up, the cost of production goes up, which means ultimately uh, the end user will pay uh, in consumer prices. So this is quite troubling. And, and part of the reason why inflation is moderated so far this year was declining oil prices, declining gasoline prices. Um, but, uh, but it looks like uh, this is the thing I watch all the time is what is energy doing? And energy drives everything in the world economy. And rising energy prices uh, is quite troubling as far as looking forward towards inflation, which also means that the Fed uh, will continue to raise interest rates. And it'll affect mortgage rates. It'll affect uh, car loans. It'll affect credit cards. And that's why, you know, I don't jive. I, I have a trouble jiving with the GDP rising 2.4% in the second quarter when we have interest rates at the highest level in 22 years. If you believe that, continue to believe it. You know, some people believe everything the government says. And you, you know the government wouldn't lie to you. Right? They don't do that. They always tell the truth. 
But what's really kind of interesting to me anyway is the Federal Reserve has to know that the U.S. government with $32 trillion in debt, uh, that rising interest rates severely impacts the budget. They know better than anybody, but they're still doing it. And, you know, you could have um, you could have deficit spending as long as the economy is growing. But right now we have deficit spending in a pretty stagnant economy. And the problem with deficit spending, the deficit is getting bigger as the interest costs on the debt go up. So right now for this fiscal year that ends October 1st, uh, economists are estimating that the amount of, uh, of our interest payments on our debt will be $950 billion. That's unproductive money. That's money that just goes out the window. It doesn't build a bridge. It doesn't improve an airport. Uh, and as interest rates go up and, and our debt matures, we never pay it off. It has to be rolled over. Uh, that average interest rate is going to continue to go up. So it's pretty, pretty interesting that the Fed is keeping the door open for higher interest rates for a longer amount of time. That means that there's going to be more reinvestment of maturing bonds at higher yield. And that higher yield is going to be locked in for two years, three years, five years, 10 years, whatever the Treasury issues. But the Fed doesn't seem to care about that. And I find that to be, be quite interesting. Uh, that they're going to continue to do that. And they also don't care about you and me. Now, they say they do. Uh, that's the reason why they're raising rates, because inflation is tough on everybody. Uh, but losing your job is also tough, um, especially in an inflationary environment. So when we're talking deficits, you know, there's different kinds of deficits, as I said. There's non-productive government spending, which is social programs, which is interest on the debt, and there's uh, spending programs and deficits that go into infrastructure where you're investing in the country, where the return on that investment justifies that spending. Uh, and um, American Gridlock put out a, a definition of deficits and how it has no real meaning. They say country A, let's use country A, they spend $4 trillion and they take in $3 trillion. This leaves a country A with a uh, $1 trillion deficit. In order to make up the difference between the spending and the income, the Treasury must issue $1 trillion in new debt. That's simple math. That new debt is used to cover the excess expenditures but generates no income, leaving a future hole that must be filled. Then they compare it to country B. Country B spends $4 trillion and receives $3 trillion in income. However, the $1 trillion of, uh, of um, deficit is financed by debt, but it's invested in projects, infrastructure, and produces a positive rate of return. There is no deficit as the rate of return on the investment funds funds the deficit over time. So which would you rather be, uh, government A or country A or country B? Well, the United States is country A. We increase the national debt now, but very little of it goes into growing the infrastructure. And don't 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 throw in my face the the infrastructure bill and all that. That's that's all just environmental garbage. Um, but a lot of the, our deficit now is debt service, welfare, uh, Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid. You know these are things that that are not productive. I mean they're necessary, but they don't do anything to grow the country.
And we continue to divert um, uh, debt uh, into uh, unproductive investments. And that's why it's so important to look at deficits. When you have deficits that are not productive, it's very, very bad for the economy. Now, it's been said in the past that once a country goes to 90 percent debt to GDP, the outstanding debt in the country uh, versus the, the, the economy. Uh, well, the United States now is at 130 percent debt to GDP. Uh, that is uh, unsustainable, and that's usually the end. The, the country's in down in a downward spiral at that point, uh, and that always leads to uh, hyperinflation because it's just unsustainable. You just can't keep borrowing money and paying interest and borrowing money. It's like having a credit card where you just keep increasing the limit and just keep borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. I mean, ultimately, you go bankrupt, right? Uh, and right now, it takes $3.02 of debt to create $1.00 of real economic growth. You want that to be a dollar for dollar. If you know, you're going to go into debt uh, of a dollar, you want to have a dollar of economic growth. And now it's taken over $3 of debt to create $1 of real economic growth. That is not good for a country. And, you know, what's the end game? Well, you know, you hear the term the Great Reset, uh, whatever that means. Uh, but sooner or later, we're going to have to deal with it. Uh, and uh, I guess $32 trillion in debt uh, really kind of matters, uh, especially when you have rising interest rates and your debt to GDP is 130%. So it's not going to end well. Let's go to the markets. Uh, what did the markets do this week? Well, the markets don't care about any of this. They don't care that the Fed's raising rates. They don't care that inflation is high. Uh, they don't care about deficits. Uh, it's just quite amazing what the market's done this year. Uh, and it has analysts, myself included, just scratching our head. Uh, and, you know, up this week, uh, it, uh, it was 14 straight days, I believe, that the Dow was up. Now, we haven't seen that until what year was that when we had 13 straight days up in the Dow? Uh, 1987. Uh, do you remember 1987, how that ended the year? Um, I do. I had just opened AFM Investments, me and my partner, Martin. We were 27 years old. Uh, two weeks later, we had the worst stock market crash in history. Uh, so I remember very well uh, uh, 1987. But right now, the market is eerily similar to that where it just keeps going up every day in the summer. Uh, and I couldn't believe it. I was driving home from work every day saying, I just don't get this. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it ended quite abruptly uh, on October 19th, 1987, when the Dow dropped 22%. So what did the markets do this week? Dow Jones Industrial Average up 0.66%, up just shy of 7% for the year, which is not a bad year for the stock market. Uh, but the S&P 500 did much better. Up 1.0 percent for the 1.01 um, percent for the week, up 19.34 percent for the year. Uh, that's a good year, let alone seven months. My guess is that a good portion, if not all of it, plus is going to be given back later in the year, especially if 1987 is any example. Uh, but the the big horse in the stock market has been the tech heavy Nasdaq, uh, up a whopping 2.02 percent for the week, uh, up almost 37 percent for the year. I mean, that's that's an amazing move in the market. The Nasdaq has erased all its losses for 2022, which was one of the worst years ever. Uh, and this is pretty much concentrated in seven stocks. The big tech stocks, it's Apple, 
just reached $3 trillion in market cap, just unbelievable. Uh, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Google, those type of companies. Uh, Tesla, uh, they're all just rocketing to the moon. Uh, and it's pulling the entire market with it. And since these, these stocks have such a large market capitalization, they are a, a good portion of the market. So when you see the markets up, it's usually because these stocks are up. And if you don't own those stocks, uh, you're not doing as well. Interest rates are starting to move up again as the GDP was stronger than expected. So if you have a stronger than expected economy, that's going to drive inflation. And that means that the Fed most likely will have to raise interest rates again. Bond markets don't like that. Interest rates go up, bonds go down, yields go up. Uh, and uh, the 10-year Treasury went over 4% uh, on Thursday after the GDP was announced. Closed this week at 3.95%. Now, 30-year mortgage rates are tied to the 10-year, so that's why it's quite troubling for the housing market. Uh, the 30-year uh, fixed-rate mortgage, the average national rate is 705. And uh, anything over 7% is just horrible for the housing market. Uh, it wasn't long ago we were at three and a half. Uh, so that's devastating. And as I said in an earlier podcast, that uh, the housing market is stuck. I mean, it is frozen. Uh, nobody wants to sell because why would they give up their three and a half percent mortgage to get a seven percent mortgage? Nobody wants to do that. Uh, and uh, first time home buyers can't afford the houses that are out there now. And that's the thing, you know, the housing prices, especially here in the Northeast, have held up really good, even though the Fed's raising rates because there's no supply. That's the thing. If there's no supply, you know, it's economics 101. There's not a whole lot of demand either, but the fact is, is that there is no glut of supply on the market because nobody wants to leave the mortgage rates that they have now. Or they refinanced a couple of years back, and they certainly don't want to go up to 7%. Either A, they can't afford it, uh, number one. Number two, they're worried about the economy and losing their jobs, and they're dealing with uh, inflation. Gold, uh, $1,960 an ounce. Silver, $2,431 an ounce. Uh, the dollar index has rebound because, again, the expectations that interest rates may go higher later in the year. Uh, the dollar index, which is a, an index that compares the dollar to a basket of foreign currencies. So it's it's kind of a not a really good indicator because if all the all the the currencies are crap and you're the least crappiest, uh, that's the index would go up. So after breaking 100 to the downside uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the U.S. dollar index is 101.70. And uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin's hovering right around 30,000, 29,300. So financial markets are not terribly concerned with uh, rising interest rates, rising inflation. Uh, nothing seems to bother the market uh, until it does. And I don't like to see markets like this. Lou, why don't you like to see markets like this? Because when they're unreal and they don't make sense when you compare it to the economic a foundation of the country, uh, it always ends badly. It could be an event that triggers it. It just could be uh, just overvaluation. It could be the Fed having to be aggressive with interest rate increases as inflation continues to rise, which it's going to rise. There's no question because energy prices are rising, as I mentioned earlier. So we're going to see a renewed increase in inflation 
later on in the year. Again, if the government wants to tell us what's really going on and not lie to us and rig the numbers. Now, the Fed raising interest rates to battle inflation uh, usually works pretty good, but it's not going to work on food. And if you think you're going to see, you know, a decline in prices at the grocery store, good luck with that. It's not going to happen. Uh, here's an article headline. Uh, Store food while you still can, because 2.4 billion people already do not have enough food as this new global famine accelerates. This is uh, from uh, the Economic Collapse blog. Uh, global food supplies just keep getting even tighter, and global hunger has risen to extreme Extremely alarming levels. People on the other side of the world are literally starving to death as I write this article. But most of us in the Western world simply do not care about millions that are deeply suffering because the mainstream media hardly ever talks about what is happening. But the truth is that we are feeling the impact of this global food crisis too. And he goes on to say the way we're experiencing the global food crisis is in higher prices. And that's what we are witnessing now. But eventually, it's not going to come just to rising prices. It's going to come to shortages. And we all know we're seeing uh, the price of produce, meat, eggs, chicken, all that kind of stuff going up. Now, it may not be going up as much as it was, but but it's still going up. Uh, And then soon, you know, sooner or later, you're going to start seeing shortages of food because of all the things that are going on in the world. Um, and most people don't can't really comprehend what's going on on a global scale. We only look at our local area, our own shop right here, and everything else seems okay. But uh, a major British news source recently noted that we're facing, quote, environmental breakdown and food system failure simultaneously. We face an uh, apocal, unthinkable prospect of perhaps the two greatest existential threats, environmental breakdown and food system food system failure converging as one triggers the other. Uh, the number of hungry people around the world started going back up in 2015, and things have been getting worse ever since. According to the United Nations, nearly 30% of the global population does not have constant access to food right now, and there are approximately 900 million people that are facing severe food insecurity. That's a nice name for saying they're hungry or they're starving. The food security and nutritional situation remained grim in 2022. The report finds that approximately 29.6% of the global population, equivalent to 2.4 billion people, did not have constant constant access to food. So why is this happening? Uh, And just think about this. 2.4 billion people out of the 8 billion people in the world don't have enough to eat. And a lot of that has to do with uh, uh, weather, natural disasters. And we're seeing it. We've been seeing it for a couple of years. But in 2023, we've seen crops get devastated by natural disasters and bizarre weather patterns. We're seeing this over and over again all around the world. And you saw these floods in Vermont a couple of weeks ago, the worst floods they've ever seen. Montpelier, uh, uh, their capital was, was under three feet of water. It's never happened before. Uh, but what you don't know is uh, farmers across the region lost all their crops. 
massive crop losses. And we're seeing it also uh, in the Midwest, in the Sun Belt. Uh, we're talking about heat waves now that we haven't seen before. Now, of course, all the climatists uh, and the environmentalists will say it's global warming. It's a very hot summer. Um, and uh, this heat wave is uh, uh, destroying crops. Nearly two-thirds of Kansas is in severe or extreme exceptional drought. Um, and uh, we're seeing it around the world. Tomato prices in India have gone up 400% due to the historic disasters the nation has been dealing with. In central Canada, one farmer hasn't had a good crop since 2016 due to seemingly endless drought that has plagued Saskatchewan. And we can see this all over the world. We could just keep going on and on. You like peaches? Canned peaches are already quite expensive, but soon they'll cost a whole lot more because the peach state is barely going to produce any peaches in 2023. Uh, Georgia has lost more than 90% of this year's crop after a February heat wave um, followed by two late spring frosts. The triple whammy destroyed peach varieties specifically bred to survive different winter scenarios and widely inflated prices of the fruit. Um, in uh, Dutch farmers now, they want in the Netherlands, they want to uh, shut down 3,000 farms. Uh, you can just go on and on with this. And uh, I, I don't think, you know, we're going to see a return to normal anytime soon. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. It just seems that one thing after the other, it seems that humanity is going through um, a very volatile and very, very difficult and scary time right now. And it's not just one thing. It's so many different things. Think about it. Pandemic. Uh, then we have uh, people all shot up with experimental vaccines, if you want to call it that. Uh, we're hearing young people having heart attacks like crazy. Um, doctors are finding major increases in cancers, blood clots, strokes, being very underreported. Unless it's somebody like uh, LeBron James's son, 19 years old, has a heart attack, has cardiac arrest playing basketball. This is not normal. And we're seeing stories like this every day. But they always report it as, uh, you know, no cause was uh, determined. Of course, no cause was determined. People die suddenly, you know, no autopsies or anything like that. Just uh, died suddenly. No cause of death was reported. Uh, this week, uh, Shanae O'Connor died at 56. Now, we don't know why she died. Could have been drug overdose. Who knows? Uh, but no cause of death. Died suddenly, but no cause of death was released. And that's all we hear over and over again. And, and it's pretty, pretty disturbing. Now you talk about food shortages. You're talking about the potential of World War III. We're talking about economic scenarios of inflation and possibly hyperinflation. And now it's being disclosed to us that we're not alone and there's aliens here with technology eons ahead of us. Uh, and uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, I'll touch on that a little later in the program. I, I think it's the, the the story of the week. But 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 Hunter Biden is the story of the week. Uh, but, you know, aliens among us, top, top retired uh, military people who are in that field and studied all this and actually saw <laughs> uh, these vehicles and these UFOs flying 
pilots and everything else. Uh, this is real people. I mean, so, I mean, what else is next? Uh, asteroids, maybe that. Uh, but we're living in the times that are going to be very, very stressful uh, to the world. And you know, the globalists have said many times that, you know, we're overpopulated. Population reduction. Remember I played for you last week? Kamala Harris coming out and slipping and saying reduced population is good for everybody, the environment. Um, it's one thing after the other. Very exciting times, to say the least, for humanity. Uh, and nothing surprises me anymore. What would surprise you now? What could come out of anywhere and surprise you and say, well, I never thought that could happen? And when I'm talking to clients and friends, and they all say the same thing, nothing would surprise me. The question is, what's next? So the moral of the story of food is store some food. Canned food would be the best, bags of rice, things like that, uh, because shortages are coming. They are coming. Uh, maybe they'll be last to us. Uh, you'll be the last to see it. But if nothing else, you're going to see higher prices. So why not buy it now? All right, time for a short commercial break. Don't you go anywhere. We'll be back right after this. AFM Investments' Lou Skatigna has been serving Ocean County for over 35 years. AFM Investments brings a level of expertise, knowledge, and experience to the Jersey Shore that you would typically have to pursue with a premier investment firm on Wall Street. Whether you need income tax preparation or financial planning, he has the experience to help you with whatever your needs are. For more information, log on to AFMinvestments.net. Securities transactions through Lee Baldwin & Company, member FINRA, NSIPC, registered advisory services through our advisors. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer, a family-owned and operated premier septic installation and repair company with more than a decade of experience in the septic services. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer provides full-service maintenance and cleaning services, pumping septic tanks, repairing broken sewer lines, cleaning of grease tanks for restaurants, as well as real estate septic inspections, repairs, and installations. Phone 732-600-8721 or go to jerseyshoreseptic.com to learn more. Jersey Shore Septic and Sewer. Top quality work at the most affordable rates. Welcome back to the Financial Physician Podcast. My name is Louis Catigno. We get together for two podcasts a week. Uh, the main podcast goes up Sunday morning by 9 o'clock. That's Eastern Time. And uh, it runs about uh, an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, then we do the midweek podcast on Wednesday. I upload it Wednesday afternoon or early Wednesday evening. That usually runs about 40 minutes, 45 minutes. So we do two podcasts a week. And if you look at my desk here, I could probably do four podcasts a week with all the stuff that's going on. But uh, hopefully you join us. I find that about 50% of the people who listen to the, the podcast that's uploaded on Sunday listen to the midweek podcast. And you don't want to miss a minute of The Financial Physician. So why not go to uh, the Podomatic link? Go to thefinancialphysician.com. Go to the link for the most recent podcast. Uh, and follow the show. There's a button there that says follow. Uh, once you follow the show, whenever I upload, automatically you're going to get an email almost in instantaneously notifying you that a new podcast uh, has been uh, uploaded. So you want to do that. Uh, it's really simple. You could also give us your email at thefinancialphysician.com. We have a, we blast out an email, but by the time it gets to my webmaster, by the time he gets it out, uh, it may be uh, the next morning. So the best way to do it is to follow us at the Podomatic uh, 
uh, podcast or anywhere else you, you, you have podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or uh, Audible or uh, Amazon, whatever it is, make sure you follow us so you know. And my, my guess is a lot of people, half the people who don't listen to the midweek podcast just doesn't know it's there. Uh, so you want to be uh, on our list. If you want to send me an email, you want me to cover something on the program, many of you send me links to articles and things that you think uh, will be helpful for the show. Or if you just have a personal finance question that I can help you with, uh, feel free to email me at lou at thefinancialphysician.com, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. I promise to uh, respond uh, to each and every uh, email. That's thefinancialphysician.com, lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Now, I think it was Wednesday's show. I was talking to you about, you know, digital currencies are on the way. And I was talking to you about this thing, WorldCoin, which I haven't heard about uh, until last week. And WorldCoin uh, uh, is um, going to be, it looks like, one of the digital currencies that are global. And coupled with that is World ID, which is a biometric digital identity. And this is kind of Orwellian if you look at it. Uh, and, and the way it works, uh, you go to some place and there's something called an orb. And you stick your eye in there and it reads your iris. And apparently everybody has a unique iris. It's like a fingerprint. So when you go on your computer, you're going to have to put your eye in this little thing so the computer knows that you're a real human being and that you are you. And you couple that with the World uh, Coin app. Uh, and your identity and everything else, you'll be able to instantaneously buy or sell or transfer money anywhere in the world. Now, the convenience part of it sounds good, um, but let's look a little deeper into that. Uh, uh, it's just another way of controlling us. You know, we talked about the, the perils of digital currency and how it could uh, be programmed to turn you off, on, take your money, tax your money. Uh, limit the amount you could spend uh, on, on on liquor or cigarettes or whatever uh, Big Brother uh, doesn't want you to spend money on. Gasoline, maybe? Uh, maybe to regulate how much your electric bill can be? Who knows uh, how they can control you? Yeah, because they want smart thermostats and everything else. Uh, but uh, they're, they're trying to incentivize people. Um, this uh, WorldCoin and World ID by saying, well, if you go and you get your ID done, you put your head in the orb, um, we'll give you some World uh, Coins. So we're going to give you free money to do this. Now, I'm going to play for you. Um, and, and by the way, in, 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 on their website, they said the plan is for the orb to eventually scan the eyeballs of every single person in the entire world. And it, it, this is on their website. WorldCoin is an attempt at global scale alignment. The journey will be challenging. The outcome is uncertain. But finding new ways to broadly share the coming technological prosperity is critical challenge of our time. And we hope you'll join us. I don't know about you, but I will never visit the orb. And there's no way that I'm going to uh, let these crazy people scan my eyeballs. Right? But anyway, I'm going to play you the commercial. Uh, if you go to their website... Uh, this is their spot where they're trying to encourage people uh, to stick their head in the orb and get World ID and use WorldCoin. Listen to this. WorldCoin has launched, and that includes World ID, a privacy-preserving digital identity that allows you to prove you are a real and unique human in the age of AI. 
World ID allows you to identify between humans and AI online, as well as sign in with different partners while keeping your identity private. To start, simply download World App. To sign up, just find the nearest orb right on the app. You can even book a guaranteed time to visit. And if there's not an orb around yet, there'll likely be one soon. A more human internet starts today, and everyone gets to play a part just for being human. I don't know about you, but that's really creepy to me. It sounds really creepy. It sounds like something you'd see in a science fiction movie or something like that. Uh, but uh, according to Zero Hedge, hundreds of thousands of people in Europe have already had their eyeballs scanned by the orb and have been issued their world ID. If reports are to be believed, the uptake in Spain, where the scheme first became available a year ago, is better than elsewhere. 150,000 participants in total. 20,000 new ones each day. And Barcelona is the place where a number of orb scanners will be installed. Portugal's not far behind with 120,000 participants. And Germany is said to also be warming up to the project ever since it started expanding two months ago. So all in all, some 2 million biometric credentials are now operated by WorldCoin. It's quite interesting that Europeans are embracing WorldCoin so enthusiastically. It seems whenever some crazy Orwellian uh, scheme comes along, Europe is always the first ones to go for it for some reason. I don't know what it is. So whether this uh, new scheme or whatever you want to call it uh, succeeds or fails, we'll see. Um, But they're trying, the powers that be are trying to, to force digital identification on us one way or the other. And whoever controls uh, the global system of digital identification uh, that ultimately prevails at the end of the day is going to have immense power over the entire planet. And as I said before, I mean, we're living in very interesting times, perilous times. Uh, And uh, the, the rate of change that's going on now is just breathtaking. It really is. Uh, But I'll tell you what, I'm not going to get my uh, world ID. But sooner or later, we're probably going to have to do it. Um, But they'll have total control of you. It's the enslavement of humanity. And uh, the question is why? Uh, You could say control. But again, it comes down to uh, a bigger picture. It's not just about finance. It's not just about money. It's not just about control. It's about something greater. And uh, I postulated a number of times on this program what I think it could be. And at first I did it tongue-in-cheek. Now I'm not so sure that it is tongue-in-cheek. And it's the eradication of the human race. And the question is, who would do it and why would they do it? Well, let's uh, later on we're going to talk about the disclosure that we're not alone. Maybe it's time for another civilization to take over the earth. And it can't take over the earth if we're still around. And it gets even crazy. Um, Once a digital currency um, is introduced to wherever you live around the world, how will you keep your digital wallet safe? Because obviously you need a digital wallet when you have these coins. If you don't know cryptocurrency, that's, that's what it is. I mean, someone could just steal your digital wallet and spend all the digital currency that you have saved up. You know, computer hacks happen all the time, right? 
Well, one German economist is warning that eventually we could see a digital wallet actually implanted under the skin. <laughs> a well-known German economist has revealed that central banks around the world are planning to introduce central bank digital currencies in the form of microchips implanted under the skin. This technology will enable complete government control over personal finances of its citizens. Now, where have we heard that before? Uh, an implanted chip under the skin. Oh, the mark of the beast in the Bible. That's right. You can't make this stuff up. It's, it's happening, people. He goes on to say, I was taught by a central banker that the CBDCs look like a small grain of rice that they want to put under your skin. Okay. Let's hope that nothing like that happens anytime soon. Things are just getting crazier and crazier each and every year. That's something else you're not putting under my skin. You're not giving me a vac shot. You're not giving me, you're not making me put my head in an orb so you can read my iris and give me a world ID. And you're not giving me the mark of the beast by implanting a chip under my skin so that I, I could uh, proceed to do commerce. It's not going to happen. But as we've seen with the billions of people who've taken the vax uh, around the world, people will do what they're told. Many people will just follow whatever the government tells them. Out of fear of retribution or a fear of getting sick as a case of, the, of COVID. In fear of not being able to buy or sell anything without the microchip in your skin. I tell you, I was doing a show on radio for 23 years. I've never talked about stuff that I'm talking about today. It's just amazing how the world has changed and how rapidly it's changed, just over the last few years. And I shudder to think uh, what the next few years uh, look like. Now, I mentioned earlier about uh, Bidenomics, right? Biden's touting that, oh, the GDP went up 2.4%. Uh, oh, and uh, inflation is starting to come down and uh, uh, things are going good here in the United States. Uh and he's touting Bidenomics. Now, Miranda Devine, a conservative columnist with the New York Post, uh, I think it was Thursday or Friday, I think it was Friday, she had um, a column that I just thought was great. And it says, the real scoop on Bidenomics, corruption, tax evasion, and Hunter by Miranda Devine. I'm going to read I'm going to read a lot of this because it's so good. Uh, Joe Biden has been trying in vain to mainstream a concept he calls Bidenomics. The mystifying slogan appears to be an effort to turn around negative public perceptions of his economic agenda, since polls show only one in three Americans approve of his handling of the economy. And that's a big deal, right? You know, 30% of people think the economy is good under Joe Biden, which means 67% or whatever it is uh, think it's horrible under Biden. It's hard to win an election um, when two-thirds or more of Americans believe uh, your stewardship of the economy is poor. So they're, 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 they're taking out, they're, they're trotting out this, this uh, psych op, if you will, uh, of, of, of talking about how great the economy is under whatever Bidenomics is. Can anybody tell me what Biden's doing to the economy? I, I don't know. I mean, he sleeps half the day. I, I, you know, when he's, not, um, when he's not shaking down foreign leaders for money, uh, I, I don't know what Bidenomics means. And nobody seems to have a clue what it means. So she goes on to say, but the definition has become much clearer over the past week after the first son sweetheart deal 
fell apart in Delaware. Two whistleblowers testified to Congress about the DOJ's obstruction of the criminal investigation into Hunter. And Senator Chuck Grassley released an explosive FBI document alleging that Joe and Hunter received $10 million in bribes from a Ukrainian oligarch. So Bidenomics means everyone has to pay their fair share of tax, unless your name is Hunter Biden, and the statute of limitations is allowed to expire. Um, Bidenomics is when $8.3 million of your foreign income is examined by investigators in Delaware for potential illegal foreign lobbying, money laundering, and tax felonies for five years. But all you end up with is a cozy plea deal on two misdemeanor tax charges. Bidenomics is when you earn at least $1.3 million as an amateur first-time artist of dubious talent, selling paintings to buyers who include Democratic donor, who your powerful father appointed to a prestigious government uh, sinecure, the Commission for the Preservation of America's Heritage Abroad. Bidenomics is when you send a menacing WhatsApp message to your Chinese business partners informing them that you're sitting here with your powerful father, and then a few days later, they send $5.1 million to your bank accounts. Bidenomics is when you claim $10,000 dues for a sex club on your tax returns as expenses for your consulting business. Uh, what else do you have? Biden, Bidenomics is when you convince your baby mama you're so broke she has to take a 75% cut in child support payments while you fly around in a pal's private jet and live between a $20,000 a month spread in Malibu and the White House, and a variety of luxury vacations home belonging to billionaire friends of your dad. Bidenomics is 10% for the big guy. Bidenomics is when you have seven grandchildren, but you tell everyone you only have six. Oh, by the way, this weekend, Friday night, <laughs> they, uh, the White House, uh, the Bidens, sent a, a letter or a memo to People Magazine. Uh, saying that they they do have seven grandchildren and uh, that uh, Hunter is you know you know working it out with the the baby's mother to have a, a good life for the baby and blah blah blah. The reason he did that is because he was going down with this one. I mean, mothers around the country, especially women of any party, just thought this was outrageous that you would not acknowledge uh, a grandchild uh, because it was had at a wedlock, not even let it get the Biden name. I mean, a lot of people, especially Democrats, will let a lot of stuff slide, including major bribery, influence peddling, uh, uh, crack smoking. Uh, that That's OK. But once you start messing around with kids and stuff like that and family issues like this, it uh, wasn't going well for them. So uh, I guess it wasn't polling well uh, and they were pretty embarrassed by it. So what do they do? They, they, they send a memo to People magazine of all places on a Friday afternoon acknowledging it. Just just. Dreadful, this family. Bidenomics uh, is when your son is paid $83,000 a month by a corrupt Ukrainian oligarch and you threaten to withhold $1 billion in U.S. aid unless the Ukrainian government fires a prosecutor who's investing the oligarch for corruption. And it, they, she goes on and on here. I can't read it all. There's so many things here. Uh, it's, it's just unbelievable. Bidenomics is when you earn a yearly salary of 44600 in 1975 as a senator, but you can afford to buy a vast 10,000-square-foot DuPont mansion with ballroom, pool house, basketball court, 
and manicured grounds in the exclusive enclave of Greenville, Delaware. And it goes on and on. It's just crazy. Bidenomics is when you get an $8 million joint book deal with your wife. And all you sell is 270,000 hardcover copies and your wife sells 29,000. Bidenomics is when a $30 bag of cocaine appears in the White House, but nobody steps up to claim their property. And the combined resources of the Secret Service and the FBI can't find the owner. And she goes on to say, uh, what else? How does she end this? Money for nothing and the chicks, not for free. That's Bidenomics. The only catch is that you have to be a Biden. As the president's campaign for a second term heats up, you can bet you will hear a lot more about Bidenomics. But now you know it is just a byword for corruption and cover-up that dwarfs Watergate and every other Washington scandal in recent memory. Bravo, Miranda Devine. I mean, that's Bidenomics. And I tell you, the scope of the scandal is just grown by the day. This weekend, um, uh, Congressman Comer came out and said they got 178 suspicious activity reports from the banks. And it looks like the number that originally was like $5 million in graft, then $17 million, is now over $50 million. And a whistleblower came out this weekend and said that the Bidens have overseas bank accounts where a lot of this money is. And James Comer said, well, we got those records, too. Uh, so uh, it, it's coming down hard on the Bidens. And this week, uh, uh, what was supposed to be a rubber stamp of a plea uh, arrangement, a slap on the wrist for Hunter Biden for evading. And it looks like now it's not one and a half million dollars in taxes. It looks like it's a lot more than that. Uh, he was going to get a misdemeanor. And uh, on a gun charge. Uh, he was going to uh, get the felony uh, wiped away through uh, uh, what they call intervention or whatever it is. Um, and uh, they went to the, um, and the media always says, it's a Trump-appointed judge, so you got to be careful. She, you know, she doesn't know the law. Uh, she's going to be partisan. Well, she knows the law. She's the only one who follows the law. And basically said, no, no, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't work. This doesn't make any sense, this kind of a deal. And apparently it looks like the Justice Department and the defense were in cahoots and they tried to bury forward immunity on future crimes and charges. I mean, this is unheard of. And it wasn't in the plea agreement. It was in uh, the gun charge diversion uh, that if anything else comes up regarding uh, foreign uh, lobbying, the Farah issues, which is big, uh, or anything else, uh, he has immunity to it going forward, which is outrageous, of course. I mean, he has immunity in perpetuity for any crime that he committed or is going to commit in the future. So, so this this really was uh, quite quite a bombshell. And uh, Jonathan Turley, who is not a conservative Republican by any means, uh, but he's uh, he's Fox's uh, constitutional attorney. He has on he's a very smart guy, um, and he I believe he is a, a law professor at the Harvard Law School. I, I, I don't know. But he was on Fox, and he explained what was going on, and he explained how how damaging this can be to the Bidens when they bring up this Foreign Agent Registration Act, or whatever it is, FARA, where you can't go and lobby for another country, for anything in this country, without getting 
registered as such. If you recall, Paul Manafort went to jail for it, as did many, many other people. And here it appears that, you know, Hunter Biden's lobbying for foreign governments uh, was tens of millions of dollars. And this is really the charge that could really put him in jail for a long time. And if you have foreign agent uh, registration act issues, well, who are you lobbying to when your dad's the vice president or the president of the United States? So here's John Turley explaining the seriousness of this deal being kicked out. George Washington University Law School professor Jonathan Turley, thanks for being with Thank me. You. Great to see you. Uh, so much to unpack with what happened today, but I think the the crucial question, at least in a lot of people's minds, is whether what these unusual proceedings corroborate or at least substantiate the claims from critics over the last few weeks that this was a plea heart deal. This plea deal was a sweetheart deal, excuse me, to begin with. Well, I think it does support that view. You know, the problem with a plea agreement is you can't actually type in wink and nod, right? I mean, the the problem with this agreement (laughs) is that the judge read it and said, what is this? And part of the obligation of the court is to make sure that the defendant and the government are very clear on what the agreement means. And they weren't. And it broke down with the most basic questions. That was what was so surprising here, is that these are the types of questions as a defense counsel you work out with prosecutors in advance. But she basically asked one question, and the whole darn thing fell apart. And so the question now is, where do you go from here? It's like a wedding where both the bride and the groom objected. (laughs) And everyone else is sitting there saying, wait, how did we get here, and where do we go from here? Well, I know that you, you know, you don't know, right, why, but why did they end up here? How did they get to this point in this courtroom today where they didn't agree on what they had actually agreed on? Yeah, I think part of the problem is they really did want to cap out the case. They, the Department of Justice wanted to cap this uh, investigation, but they didn't want to say that it was now over. From the very beginning, the Hunter Biden team said that this is a closeout plea agreement, that there'd be nothing left to investigate. But the Department of Justice is telling Congress, we're not going to give you these witnesses or these documents because there's an ongoing investigation. You can't do both things when a judge is asking you to specifically address whether this is a closeout or a continuing investigation. One of the specific questions the judge reportedly asked today was about FARA, the Foreign uh, Agents Registration Act. She asked the prosecution if the plea deal would protect Hunter Biden from future FARA-related charges. They did not answer that question. Why do you think they didn't answer that question? Well, this is a big problem because this was all supposed to be scripted. It was all supposed to be easy. And now it's off script and it's anything but easy because the judge just raised the one charge that the White House most fears, which is the chance that Hunter was a foreign agent. And if he was a foreign agent, the question is foreign agent for who and for what purpose? The president was that purpose. If you're influence peddling, it's influence over the president. So if you go for Farah, it's going to bring all of this stuff in, including some of these tax counts from 2014 to 2015 that the Department of Justice allowed to run allow the statute of limitations to expire. All of that can get bootstrapped into a FARA issue. So the whole purpose of this deal is collapsing as, as, as we're watching it. And it's taken Washington by utter surprise. I was on the Hill yeah. talking with members 
and everyone was everybody floored. was in disbelief That's today, right. seeing, yeah. you know from capitol hill to the news stations so what's happening here was the justice department and defense were in cahoots so they tried to bury as i said earlier um the future immunity in the diversion agreement. That's where if he goes through probation and stays sober, that the felony charge for guns would be dropped. And by the way, it would be expunged like it never even happened. Um, but um, but they buried it in there. They made it so broad uh, in there that it could uh, or it, it would uh, include his foreign influence peddling operations in China and elsewhere. And uh, so the... Um, the judge in the case smelled a rat. She, she thought something wasn't right here. Uh, so what she did is she started asking questions about it. Now, the Department of Justice had a safe face at that point, And they stated that the investigation into Hunter was ongoing and that Hunter remained susceptible to prosecution under FARA, Foreign Agent Registration Act. So Hunter's lawyers exploded at that point because they thought the fix was in. And they clearly believed that, you know, Farrer was covered under the deal. And they thought so because, again, the pretrial diversion language was so broad that they thought it covered it. So that blew up the deal. Uh, the DOJ had to do that at that point. They said, no, he's still under investigation. We still may charge him with that because they had to. Otherwise, it would have been obvious that there were cahoots. So Hunter pled not guilty, and that's currently where we are now. Now, probably what's going to happen here, Hunter's lawyers and the Department of Justice are going to go off and try to pull together a new set of agreements, likely narrower, that doesn't include future um, immunity, to satisfy the judge. Um, And we'll see how that goes. He'll still probably not serve any jail time for uh, the tax evasion that you and I would have served. Uh, and uh, probably uh, will not spend jail time or have a felony charge for the gun charge. They're just going to remove that future immunity issue. Uh, So it's still a sweetheart deal. Uh, None of us knew. I didn't know, uh, and I don't think anybody knew, that part of that plea agreement was future immunity against uh, influence peddling, because that's the big one. And they felt that it would just go away. Now, now, if uh, Hunter is a foreign agent, then Joe Biden is also a foreign agent. I think you're going to equal uh, them together. Um, but uh, my guess is that, that look, he, Hunter Biden is never going to spend any time in jail. It's not going to happen. And Jonathan Turley, he, he wrote an article, and, and the headline of the article is, Biden's break the glass option, like the last option he may have. Pardon Hunter and withdraw from the 2024 election. And I think that's a pretty good thing. I think that's the way it's going to go. And uh, now, uh, Jean-Pierre, whatever her name is, um, was asked about, will Joe Biden pardon his son? And this was her answer. And going back to the first question of the briefing, I know you said not a lot's changed since yesterday and that it's a personal matter, but from a presidential perspective, is there any possibility that the president would end up pardoning his son? No. So her answer to the question was a terse no, but that doesn't mean anything. Uh, They change their story all the time over there. You remember? Uh, I never talked to my son about his business, and now she comes and says that the president has never been in business with his son. 
So it's all semantics. And uh, if he has to look, Hunter Biden is not going to spend a day in jail. Trust me on that one. He's not going to spend a day in jail. But uh, Jonathan Turley, you know, he believes that, you know, push comes to shove. That's what's going to happen. If it gets too hot in the kitchen there, Biden's going to say that I'm going to pardon my son. I love my son. He made a mistake because of his addictions. uh, And uh, I'm not going to run for re-election due to my health or or whatever. And that's what John Turley thinks. And I I agree with him. Um, uh, But I hope he doesn't doesn't pardon his son. I mean, that's just so self-serving. It's just ridiculous. But some are saying that, you know, if Trump gets in, office, he's going to pardon himself. So uh, I, I don't know how that pardon thing works. Um, but he goes on to say that um, that's a way out for the Bidens. And uh, the Justice Department, he said, is in a bind right now. Uh, it couldn't admit at the hearing that Hunter Biden is going to escape future liability uh, for uncharged crimes. And they say the investigation is still ongoing. But at some point here, with all the evidence that's coming out and whistleblowers and money transfers, I mean, how much how much evidence do you need? And the Justice Department should have appointed a special prosecutor a long time ago on this. Thinking about the special prosecutor on, on, on Trump, on the documents, a library issue, so to speak. Uh, and now they're going after him for January 6th. More indictments are coming. It just doesn't stop with the Trumps. Uh, but you have all this evidence wire transfers, uh, testimony from whistleblowers. Uh, You you got uh, FBI documents that they sat on, the laptop with all the correspondence in it, partners of the Bidens saying that he was involved in their business. Now, Hunter Biden's partner and was his best friend at the time, uh, Archer, uh, Devin Archer, is set on Monday, I believe, to uh, speak with the House uh, Oversight Committee or one of those committees. Now, apparently, he's in hiding because he's getting death threats for him and his family. Uh, so let's see if he, if he winds up backing out from this. But, you know, he's going to come on. Supposedly, it's been leaked to the press uh, that he's agreed to come on and say that that Joe Biden's been on many phone calls uh, with business deals uh, for the Bidens. So one thing after the other is coming out. Every week, there's more disclosure on this. Now, of course... Um, and uh, like I said, Turley thinks that ultimately he'll just pardon his son and just say that um, he loves his son and I'm not going to run for re-election. And maybe the impeachment stuff will go away and maybe uh, uh, the DOJ stuff will go away as well. Now, it shouldn't. If they committed these crimes, including influence peddling, tax evasion of millions and millions of dollars, foreign overseas accounts not reported to the IRS – I mean, they throw us in jail and lock the key, and throw the key away. You know, these things can't go away just because he pardons his son. Now, yes, he could pardon his son, but what about himself? Is he going to pardon himself before he leaves office? Against any uh, disclosures that may come out later on? I don't know. Uh, but uh, facing an impeachment inquiry, uh, very low public support. It's much lower than a report. Uh, a son in legal jeopardy, uh, he could... He could use the case to close out his political career and just say, look, you know, it was a mistake um, and I'm going to take the hit for it and I'm not running again. Now, of course, the the leftist press who always runs cover for the Bidens, they don't think that any of this stuff is a big problem. And listen to way this is all different. 
This is the day that this information came out in the court uh, of them throwing out the plea deal. Listen to how one station after the other, one leftist correspondent after the other, uh, thinks there's no big deal here. They're weaponizing Joe Biden's son against him. It's only going to add more fuel to the political fire that Republicans were stoking on Capitol Hill as they move forward with a potential impeachment charge. That's the goal of what they want to do. They want to muddy up Joe Biden in the minds of voters ahead of the re-election. They are going to try to indict a father for loving his son who has been addicted Mm -hmm. to drugs and or alcohol. And without evidence of the father doing anything other than loving that son. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Must be nice having the media on your side. It must really be nice uh, to be a Democrat uh, and to have, you know, with Trump, everything 24-7, Russian collusion, no evidence whatsoever. They ran with it 24-7, all the evidence in the world against Joe Biden, uh, and they run cover for him. Uh, it's just unbelievable. They want to they want to go after a man for loving his son who had an addiction. Give me a break. These are the biggest corrupt, this is the most corrupt thing that's happened in the United States in its history. Uh, if, if, if it's true that $50 million, and it's probably more, that's what they got so far, that the Bidens have taken in uh, through influence. Play. And my concern is, you know, Joe Biden is president of the United States still. Whose back pocket is he in? Well, for sure, Ukraine. Uh, you don't think Zelensky has all the dope on him? And Hunter? Of course he does. And he could use that as blackmail. And he probably is every day. Every week we see another billion dollars, another billion two, another billion three. No peace talks. Uh, Are we being pushed into a war because the Bidens have been bought and are being blackmailed? What about China? All the money that came from them? Uh, Are we doing things now? It doesn't seem like Biden's too much anti-China right now. Uh, so it's one thing after the other with the Bidens. Look, they're going down. Uh, no question about it. As I said many times in this program, Joe Biden is not going to be the candidate for president. Uh, we'll see who it's going to be. But they better move soon because uh, uh, time's kind of running out on the clock here uh, to get a new candidate in. They're doing everything they can to destroy uh, RFK. Did you hear this? You know, we want to talk about Petty. Uh, he's asked three months ago, for Secret Service protection, which is afforded to any candidate that has the the amount of support uh, that RFK does, around 20%. They just ignored him. Uh, So he's walking around without Secret Service protection. Was it his father and his uncle were killed and assassinated, uh, uh, and and, and the Biden administration won't give him Secret Service protection? Are they hoping that somebody takes him out? I don't know. But this is who these people are. They, they just turn my stomach. They really do. And like I said, you got the media just covering for them. It's just, just out of control. More media bias uh, to show you. Uh, an Arkansas, an Arkansas um, Republican congressman delivered an impressive performance that, that should be studied by other conservatives when it comes to handling adversarial interviews, which is always the case whenever it's a, a mainstream media outlet other than Fox. Well, Sarah Snyder, she claims to be a journalist. Um, uh, she falsely kept insisting that the GOP had not produced a piece of hard evidence to prove Hunter was selling influence or that, that Joe Biden was involved in any way. And there's tons of influence, uh, tons of evidence out there. 
and and listen to this interview. And he handled it perfectly. And then she uh, abruptly cut the interview uh, when she was getting nowhere with him. But what is Hunter Biden selling? Nothing but influence. And but, so, but couldn't he be uh, there, selling just, that influence, sir? Couldn't he be selling that influence, sir, if that is the case, without his dad knowing? In other words, selling it using the name well, he, without, sure. you know what I mean? Well, President Biden changed his story once again today and um, and said that, that, that first he said he's never talked to me about business, which to me is just absurd. I mean, you talk to your dad. I, I talk to my dad about everything. Uh, my business, my political life, my love life, for goodness sakes, or lack thereof, I guess. But, you know, to say that he's not talking to his dad about it, and then his dad says, well, we didn't talk about that business. And then, you know, it's, it's just too much, ma'am. Tens of millions of dollars. And let's be honest, if they'd have paid that money to the Trumps and there was no, and, and you'd be asking, where's the quid pro quo? Mm-hmm. And this is just the reality of what's going on and the, and the money laundering is pitiful. I mean, it's but, but I just want to be really quick, clear, Congressman. That, yeah, Congressman, look, nothing has been made pub- public yet um, that shows us all of this. When and if it is, uh, we will get back to you. We'd love to talk to you um, if you have the evidence to, to show. But at this point, we, we haven't seen, the public hasn't seen any of this hard evidence uh, that has been brought well, up. I, I don't know what, you, of, you have $10 million dollars coming from Burisma, a company, you know, they're accusing uh, Biden, of, of, they accused Trump of doing what Biden actually did, $10 million of bribery. Um, to, and they fired a guy. I mean, you can follow the money, ma'am. I and mean, these are FBI informants. These are FBI. Right, but it has to be proven. There has to be up. some proof. You can't just say it happened. Well, there has to be not, some proof, well, right? Okay. Well, what was the 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 dossier on Trump? There wasn't really any proof. It was all hearsay. And now here you've got a, an FBI document, an official document showing that. So. You know, we can sit here and argue about it, and I get it. You're, you know, you're, you've got your base. I've got mine, but I've seen. The I don't have a base. I'm a journalist. I don't have a base. Democrat. I understand, ma'am. You work for CNN, but let's be honest. If you work for Fox, it'd be the right wing, and you all are the left wing. And I get we're it. Not, it's politics. I'm not, it's usual, ma'am. You don't ma'am, know my politics, yeah, sir. You nobody, really don't know my nobody politics. Nobody believes that, ma'am. You can say that, and you can have your fingers crossed on. But again, there has to be proof, sir. There has to be proof both with my politics. And with whether or not Joe Biden is involved in this. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you talking to me about UAPs and the issue with Hunter Biden. I appreciate you coming on, sir. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me on, ma'am. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That was uh, Arkansas Republican Congressman Tim Bouchette. Uh, What a polite guy. Uh, Southern gentlemen are so polite. Yes, ma'am. This ma'am. And she just didn't want him uh, to spew out the evidence FBI documents, whistleblowers. It, none of that counts to them, right? Uh, you don't know my politics. Yes, you do. <laughs> There's no evidence of my politics, she says. Uh, you work for CNN. Uh, you wouldn't have a job there if your politics weren't left-wing. And just the way you conducted that interview, throwing shade and protection to the Bidens, uh, tells us your politics. So uh, who are you trying to kid that you're a journalist? Uh, not true. Her name's Sarah Snyder, by the way. Uh, claims to be a journalist. Uh, but see, they're never going to accept evidence. You can put it right in their face and they won't accept it. But meanwhile, uh, the, the Trumps, everything, uh, you have to take at face value. Uh, whether it's a dossier that's unverified, uh, you run with it 24-7 for three years. It's just nuts. Uh, these people are just totally out of control. 
All right, let's go back to Capitol Hill, where this week um, there was uh, some interesting um, hearings. Uh, uh, one is uh, the one on UFO disclosure, uh, which should have been plastered across every newspaper. It should be the lead story in every news program in the world, uh, where uh, we have, um, uh, we have uh, retired higher-up government people uh, who have knowledge of this, testifying under oath in front of Congress that we have extraterrestrial crafts uh, and we have extraterrestrial uh, biologics, they call it, uh, obviously uh, bodies or uh, uh, pilots of these crafts. So I guess it was Thursday, uh, three former military officials told Congress they believe the government knows much more about UFOs than it's telling the public. Well, I've known this for a long time. I'm a big UFO guy, uh, extraterrestrial guy. Since I was a kid, I probably read almost every book that's come out. Uh, I'm listening to an audio book now, also on a phenomenon. So I'm really into this stuff. And when I was 10 years old, I was convinced uh, that extraterrestrials have been visiting us. I read everything about the Roswell incident and everything else. So this kind of you know, piqued my interest. And uh, so these are three former military officials. Uh, uh, one of them is David Grush. Uh, um, he was involved in the program. Uh, and he's spoken to everybody that's involved in this. So he, he knows. And uh, Congress, this was the first bipartisan hearing I've seen in a long time. Both Democrats and Republicans want to get to the bottom of this because it's a national security issue. It's a national security. It's a world security issue, not a national. It's a planetary uh, security issue. And apparently the government's been covering this up for almost 100 years. And some say that they've been visiting us for eons. And what the purpose is, I don't know. But I'm going to play you part of the testimony in Congress under oath by very well-respected government officials uh, and uh, listen to what they have to say. And you make your decision on this. I would not be surprised. Okay. You've stated that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft. Based on your experience and extensive conversations with experts, do you believe our government has made contact with intelligent extraterrestrials? Something I can't discuss in a public setting. Um, okay, I can't ask when you think this occurred. <laughs> um, if you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. And was this documentary evidence, this video, photos, eyewitness? Like, how would that be determined? The specific documentation I would have to talk to you in a skiff about. Gotcha. Um, Okay. So, and and you may or may not be able to answer my last question, and maybe we get into a skiff at the next hearing that we have, but who in the government either, what agency, sub-agency, what contractors... Who should be called into the next hearing about UAPs, either in a public setting or even in a private setting? And, and you probably can't name names, but what agencies or organizations, contractors, et cetera, do we need to call in to get these questions answered, whether it's about funding, what programs are happening, and what's out there? I can give you a specific 
cooperative and hostile witness list of specific individuals uh, that were in those. And, and how soon can we get that list? I'm happy to provide that to you after the hearing. Super. Thank you. And I yield back. Well, pretty amazing testimony. Um, and uh, if true, and I have no reason to believe that they don't believe what they're talking about, uh, this is monumental. <laughs> and you know what? Nobody's come up to me, friends, family, or anything, and say, hey, Lou, did you hear the thing that we have UFOs here? And it's it's kind of just an afterthought on the news. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. And the fact that this is a bipartisan, that both parties you know, want to get to the bottom of this, I, I think we finally will. Uh, but it's taken decades and decades and decades. Uh, but, uh, boy, isn't that a, a mind blower uh, to humanity uh, to have proof from people who know uh, that we have uh, many, apparently, uh, they're not called UFOs now, UAPs. Uh, why did they change the name? Maybe the stigma of UFOs was too great. And through this disclosure, they just wanted to use a new acronym for it unidentified aerial phenomenon. Uh, but either way, they're UFOs, um, they're extraterrestrials, they're aliens. Uh, and the fact that this is not a science fiction movie, this is real. Uh, why everybody isn't talking about this, I don't know. I don't want to play more from the hearing uh, with um, uh, David Grush. Uh, uh, he's going to go on. Uh, and uh, first, no, first thing I want to do is, uh, you're going to listen to a pilot talk about when they encountered this tic-tac. They call it a tic-tac because it looks like a tic-tac, you know, a candy. Uh, it was relatively small, about 15 feet in diameter. Uh, and he talks about how it's flying and the, that this is not human physics. It's impossible. The G-forces would be amazing. So uh, let's listen more to David Grosch's testimony to Congress. At first, we assumed they were radar errors. But soon, we began to correlate the radar tracks with multiple onboard sensors, including infrared systems, eventually through visual ID. During a training mission in Warning Area Whiskey 72, 10 miles off the coast of Virginia Beach, two F-18 Super Hornets were split by a UAP. The object, described as a dark gray or a black cube inside of a clear sphere, came within 50 feet of the lead aircraft and was estimated to be 5 to 15 feet in diameter. The mission commander terminated the flight immediately and returned base. Our squadron submitted a safety report, but there was no official acknowledgement of the incident and no further mechanism to report the sightings. Soon, these encounters became so frequent that aircrew would discuss the risk of UAP as part of their regular pre-flight briefs. The majority of witnesses are commercial pilots at majority major airlines. Often, they are veterans with decades of flying experience. Pilots are reporting UAP at altitudes that appear above them at 40,000 feet, potentially in low Earth orbit or in the gray zone below the Kármán line, making inexplicable maneuvers like right-hand turns and retrograde orbits or J-hooks. If everyone could see the sensor and video data I witnessed, our national conversation would change. I urge us to put aside stigma and address the security and safety issue this topic represents. If UAP are foreign drones, it is an urgent national security problem. If it is something else, it is an issue for science. Now, pilots are, are afraid to report this now, uh, even to their superiors when they see it, because uh, apparently the best thing you could do as a pilot, if you see something like this, is shut up and don't even talk about it. And there's been so many encounters lately with these these UAPs, UFOs, whatever you want to call them. Uh, but uh, obviously, the higher ups, the supervisors in the military, uh, don't want this out. And it's been that way for decades. Uh, but it looks like finally we're going to get some transparency. 
Um, and uh, let's see if it goes anywhere. Uh, I want to play more of uh, David Grush's testimony. Uh, this is his, part of his opening statement. Uh, I was informed in the course of my official duties of a multi-decade uh, UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program, uh, to which I was denied access to those additional read-ons when I uh, requested it. I made the decision, based on the data I collected, to report this information to my superior, superiors and multiple inspectors general, and in effect becoming a whistleblower. As you know, I've suffered retaliation for my decision, uh, but I am hopeful that my actions will ultimately lead uh, to a positive outcome of uh, increased transparency. All right, monumental blockbuster testimony uh, from people in the know about uh, aliens and UFOs. And I, I think the most striking thing that was reported uh, was the testimony that we actually have alien bodies. And maybe we even have living aliens. I mean, uh, kind of exciting, I guess. Uh, kind of scary, I guess. But my thinking is that with the advanced technology, these UAPs obviously have, uh, and apparently they've been with us forever, uh, that they would have taken over the world by now if they wanted to. Uh, it shouldn't be hard uh, unless they were just waiting there, biding their time for the right time to do it. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but I think uh, the door has been cracked open a little bit here, and hopefully we'll get more transparency, maybe from the government itself. But I don't trust the government. Uh, if they do release this information, they're doing it for a reason. Uh, who knows what that reason is? But uh, very exciting testimony in Capitol Hill. And I'm going to continue to follow it, and I'll bring it to you here on the program. Biden's corrupt DOJ uh, added a couple more indictments on the Trump case uh, regarding documents. Him and uh, apparently a service employee uh, of Mar-a-Lago are accused of uh, being – Trump is being accused of telling this worker to delete the server that had surveillance film at Mar-a-Lago. Number one, it never happened. It was never done. Uh, but they're charging him with it anyway as obstruction of justice. But isn't Mar-a-Lago owned by Trump? Uh, doesn't he have a right to uh, do whatever he wants with his own uh, surveillance system? I don't know. But uh, he was uh, indicted further, you know, more of the witch hunt. And I, I assume that his servant or whoever it was that worked there, his service guy, was indicted so they can get him to turn against Trump. You know how that goes. Uh, but more of the same. But the more and it, probably this week, Trump's going to probably get indictments for insurrection on January 6th. Uh, they just don't stop. Uh, but the more they indict him, the more more uh, approval he gets, uh, at least in the Republican Party, but also in the country. Uh, he's up big in the Republican Party. I mean, it's not even close. I think DeSantis is like 30 points behind him and, and falling rapidly. DeSantis just let go, uh, I think, a third of his staff. So, I mean, his campaign isn't going good. Nobody else on the Republican side is going to challenge him. So, uh, uh, and they're supposed to have the trial for for Trump in May. I I don't see that happening, especially with these other indictments coming down. Uh, But they want to to have him on trial in the middle of uh, the primary season, just before the election. Uh, truly uh, banana republic stuff going on here in the United States. It's really quite quite the shame. Uh, but again, his approval rating, you know, it keeps going up and up and up. Uh, it's not even going to be close. Uh, and the, the Trump campaign put out uh, a new spot about exactly what's happening here. And they, they call it, uh, if I was the deep state, 
Uh, and it's a, a parody on um, Paul Harvey. I've played it on, on this program before. If I were the devil. And he goes on to say what he would do if he was the devil. Uh, and this is, a, this is a take on that. But if I was the deep state. Uh, and uh, it's, re- it's really, really well done. Uh, even the guy's voice sounds like Paul Harvey. I'm, I'm going to play it for you. If I was the deep state and I wanted to destroy America, I would rig the election with a puppet candidate, one that was so compromised that they would never say a word about it. I would create a false flag that allows for mail-in ballots. I would be in charge of the ballot counting machines. I would create a false flag to blame all who question the results of the election. If I was the deep state, I would prosecute anyone that went against me. I would sue and prosecute anyone that spoke up about the fraudulent election. I would use my powers to shut down all your internet businesses and bankrupt you. If I was the deep state, I would make everyone an example why you should never question a Democrat ever winning an election. I would imprison my foes. I would use my corrupt DAs and blackmailed judges to destroy you. I would make sure all crimes I ever committed never happened. I would prosecute my biggest competition. I would make sure they could never run for office ever again. If I was the deep state, I would convince everyone that Ukraine Nazis were good and women are men. If I was the deep state, I would own every politician that mattered. If I was the deep state, I would push my pedophilia ambitions on you. If I was the deep state, you'd question your sexual identity but not the medical establishment. If I was the deep state, you would fear to ever resist me. If I was the deep state, you would wish I was really the devil. If I was the deep state, I would say mission accomplished. I thought that was great. Well done. All right, let's end today's show with... uh, This is an interesting story. Um, uh, Grandma horrified after life savings is literally eaten by termites. A granny in Malaysia hit rock bottom in an unusual way after she had her entire life savings completely devoured by termites. A Facebook post detailing her unfortunate route to rock bottom is currently blowing up online. According to her grandson, who uploaded the tragic tale, the unnamed senior had reportedly squirreled away around $8,700 in a box for a pilgrimage to Mecca in 2024. However, her dreams of a trip to the Holy Land were soon dashed by a biblical plague of bugs. When she tried accessing her cash, she saw that the banknotes had been chewed to shreds by termites. Accompanying photos showed the mangled greenbacks, which had been sliced into leaf-like shapes. Khmer, who lives in Kelantan, said he tried to salvage the situation by sending half of the pillaged bills to the Central Bank of Malaysia with the hopes of getting them replaced. However, he claimed that the other half were beyond salvaging. Carroll alleged that perhaps the banknote banquet was a sign that his grandmother was not destined to go to Mecca. Now he's imploring others to refrain from storing their cash at home, lest they suffer a similar fate. The social media commentator had numerous suggestions for how to better save money, with the most, most recommending the next time she converted to gold, which is far less palatable to wood-eating insects. Interestingly, this isn't the first time termites have destroyed someone's money, which often contains cellulose, the ingredient in wood that bark biters subsist on. In 2013, a Chinese woman paid a hefty termite tax after the pest chewed through 65000 of her savings. This is perhaps particularly problematic given Americans' penchants for hoarding physical dough. 
A September poll of 2,000 adults found that 51% of people have cold, hard cash stored away in their homes, with the average person stashing away a little over $1,000. So there's a, there's a lesson for you. Uh, maybe uh, keep your home cash in gold or silver coins where the insects will not eat them. All right, we're out of time. I, I didn't get through a lot of the stuff I have here. That's why you want to join me for the midweek podcast. I have so much in front of me that I may have to do at least an hour uh, on Wednesday. I upload it Wednesday afternoon. Go to Podomatic when you're listening to this. If you listen to it now, follow the program so you'll be notified uh, when it's up. But um, rest assured, if you go to uh, thefinancialphysician.com, link over to the podcast, uh, you'll see that we have the new one up by Wednesday night. And as always, we have Sunday's program uploaded by 9 a.m. Eastern Time Sunday. Thanks so much for joining us. If you want to get in touch with me, my uh, email address is lou at thefinancialphysician.com. Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. If you want me to, to comment on something on the program or you have a personal finance question that I could help you with, glad to do it. Uh, Lou at thefinancialphysician.com. If you want to set up a no obligation financial consultation with me, now more than ever, I think it's important to do that, especially if you're close to retirement. My office number is 732 905 8100. That's 732 905 8100. Have a wonderful week. Join me Wednesday for the midweek podcast. And always remember, I'm not far right. I'm right so far.